Welcome to the Dear Data podcast, where our mission is to increase diversity in the field of artificial intelligence to ensure that we have all perspectives in the data that is driving the decisions of tomorrow. We're your hosts, Sajna and Marissa, and we're excited for today's episode, where we speak with a woman who recently transitioned from being a venture manager for AI startups into a career in the venture capital world. Let's get started. Today, we welcome Sarah from Panache Ventures, who has a passion for supporting the rapid scaling of early stage ventures across a wide range of industries. Sarah has a master's in management, innovation, and entrepreneurship, and vast knowledge in venture creation and sustained growth. Sarah previously worked at an objectives-based startup program as the venture manager for their AI stream. Welcome, Sarah. We're so excited to have you today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. We know that you recently transitioned from that venture manager role for the Creative Destruction Lab into uh, an investor at a VC firm. Um, a few months into the role, is there anything that you reflect on as some really pivotal steps you took to prepare yourself for that transition? Yeah. So to prepare myself for the transition, I think when I was at um, CDL, I was very focused on a kind of specific niche area of AI. As, as you may know, I was focused on, um, within the, the broader, of, um, broader umbrella of AI, it was focused on what we were calling uh, regulatory complements. And so it was focused on areas such as privacy, um, model developer tools that enable model explainability and reduce algorithmic bias. And so it was really doing that like deep dive into that specific category within AI. And then when I moved over to Panache, um, Panache is an industry agnostic fund. And so had to become a lot more comfortable with like exploring new markets and knowing that I wasn't going to be focused on this like very, very specific niche um, category anymore. And so I had probably around like 30 discussions with um, other VC funds, other partners, other analysts, other associates, um, and just had conversations with them about their recommendations for kind of doing shallow dives into markets. And so rather than really doing that like deep, deep dive into ethical AI, for example, which is what I'd been focused on at CDL, any recommendations for like, all right, we have this potential investment that we may do in like two days in this space that I don't know anything about. And so, um, yeah, I had a lot of conversations with them about recommendations for doing like very quick market research and, and learning about um, an investment opportunity um, with, with minimal information. So that, so that was kind of the main thing was just having a lot of conversations with, with um, other funds. And then I was very fortunate that um, the uh, woman who I'm working with, Altea, uh, on the Toronto team, at Panache, she teaches a course on venture capital investing. And so I was kind of looking around at different courses that I could take just to familiarize myself mainly with like the mechanics of financing, uh, because that was something that I didn't really have a lot of experience with previously. And so she was able to um, give me a really great introduction to to all of that and, and how that works and also just kind of the, the terminology around the VC space. Uh, do, you, do you see a big portion of uh, the ventures that that you're working with now um, having, you know, some impact in the AI space or um, the AI space having some impact on them? Oh, 100%. I think like so many companies in pretty much like every SaaS company that we look at has AI to, to some degree. And it's interesting because more and more so these conversations around 
ethical AI are being discussed kind of across different industries. And so because now every kind of software solution has at least some component of AI, or if it's not currently in their product, it's often somewhere in their long-term product roadmap to integrate AI into their system. I find that there are more conversations being had around, well, like, what data is training the models that's making this decision, what's going into the system and, and what's the output and how are you verifying that information? And so I'm seeing a lot more of those kinds of discussions or even kind of from like the venture capital perspective, asking more questions around like, what is the data that's being used to, to feed into this and, and what are the outcomes and how are you validating, uh, validating that? That's awesome. That's so great that these conversations are being had. Um, I know right now they're probably being had in kind of different ways um, because there aren't any, you know, regulations coming down to say these are the types of things that that you need to look for yet. Um, But I I do want to know kind of how you got into your last role at CDL. Uh, What kind of knowledge of artificial intelligence um, did you have going in or pick up along the way? And and what was that like for you? I had honestly no knowledge of artificial intelligence when I joined CDL. Um, my background was originally in in science, um, not computer science, though. It was in neuroscience and psychology, um, and then did my master's in, in management, innovation, and entrepreneurship, and then also uh, founded um, a business, a, a B2C marketplace connecting families with last-minute trusted childcare. And so I came to CDL kind of having experience looking at the startup ecosystem from a couple different perspectives. So like from my master's and then also from like being a founder myself and, and knew that I was interested in, in early stage startups, but didn't really know like what specific industry I wanted to, to focus in on. And when I applied to CDL, I was really fascinated by two of their streams. So I was interested in potentially the health stream, just coming from my science background. I I thought that that would be a good fit. And then I was interested in, in AI. And the reason I was interested in AI was because I didn't view it as this like niche category or niche market, because I knew that AI is something that's just going to be ever present and in all of the different markets. So even within the health stream, there's going to be AI applications, even within like the matter stream, there's going to be potential artificial intelligence applications there. And so I I felt that it was a great way to kind of gain exposure to um, a lot of different applications of the technology. And so indicated interest uh, interest in in either of those streams um, was put put in AI had no uh, no knowledge at all and so I took a bunch of free courses like IBM has um, a couple of like introduction to AI courses which I took just to like familiarize myself with the vocabulary um, and yeah and then quickly after I joined that's when we uh, I believe they were already having discussions around these kind of key categories that I mentioned earlier that I started to to focus on around like regulatory compliments or or ethical AI. Um, And so really developed a a passion for better understanding that. And so dedicated a lot of my education around the AI space to understanding AI through the lens of ethics. And so took a couple of different courses. um, Like I took a course uh, with Bloomberg Beta and Stanford offered this like future of technology um, course that was all around like the importance of considering ethics in in the development of technology and, and specifically artificial intelligence. And so, yeah, just did a lot of courses like that to better understand 
better understand the space through that lens. That's so interesting. And I think you've, you've named a few great resources that our listeners can, can check out online if they're interested in, in learning more about ethical AI. Do you have any areas, personally, um, areas of AI that you're really passionate about investing in? I definitely in? am personally interested in like healthcare applications of AI. Like that's a, a space where I'm seeing a lot of like AI for the purposes of drug development is, is something that we see a lot of. And that's something that I, I guess I also just had some purview to when I was at um, CDL. And so, yeah, that that's an area that I would say is, is pretty up and coming and um, something that I'm interested in. I We also had... Um, when I was at CDL, there was this new stream that was developed in in the time of COVID called the recovery stream. And that was focused on um, people coming up with different technologies to tackle, not necessarily like treatments of the virus, but different like economic issues as it pertains to um, like things that are happening in the world because of COVID. And there were a couple of AI applications there that, that I found to be really interesting. And so, um, yeah, I, I would say like AI for healthcare is, is the area that I'm, that I'm most interested in, but then also like privacy is the area, um, kind of within AI that I would say I'm like most interested in. And I think that's obviously kind of in part influenced by my experience at CDL. And so like kind of AI for AI, I guess, like using artificial intelligence to secure the data that is being used to feed into AI systems is is an area that that I'm specifically interested in. Um, so yeah, I would say like healthcare and, and privacy are, are two core two core areas. I love that AI for AI. That's a really yeah. <laughs> a really good way of putting it. Um, I think the application within healthcare is going to be so revolutionary. Um, I myself like do not have any background in, in healthcare. You know, I'm as far removed from that industry as you can be, but things like anomaly detection, um, to be able to diagnose rare diseases is like, it's, it's really just going to transform that industry as we know it today. That's really cool stuff. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think too, it's interesting with like AI for diagnostics, like that's when there's going to be kind of the need for these solutions around model explainability, because like mm-hmm. with this really fantastic AI, that's going to be able to like look at a scan and say, oh, that's this type of cancer. It's like advanced to this degree, X, Y, Z someone's going to need to be able to explain why that is, or if it ends up being wrong, like there's going to need to be some sort of um, ability to explain the model's decisions. And I think like model explainability is, is going to be integral in all areas of uh, all applications of artificial intelligence. But I think healthcare is one of the areas where it's going to be like particularly important if we're going to be depending on AI to be Mm -hmm. making these like diagnoses and, and assessments. And I think finance is another area where um, there's a lot of potential for like FinTech is, is another area where there's going to be a lot of potential for, for AI to, to disrupt the space. But then once again, it's another area where model explainability is going to be, very necessary because there's going to be like models making decisions about who gets approved for a loan, who gets approved for credit cards, X, Y, Z. And so if a model is just kind of spitting out that information about you're approved, you're rejected, you're like the banks are going to need to be able to, to explain themselves. Mm -hmm. For sure. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think the, the interesting 
kind of piece around healthcare and fintech is um, being able to kind of like augment human decision-making in a very objective way. I, mm-hmm. I just started reading a book called Noise by Daniel Hanneman, mm-hmm. and there's one other author on there. And it's it's really about how that there is so much variation in human judgment. So, um, you know, the same patient um, could have cancer and go to one doctor and one doctor could say, you have three months to live. You go to another doctor, the other doctor could say, you have two years to live. Yeah. And there was, you know, there, there was this one part of the book that said there's up to 70% of noise in human judgment. And I think that's like a, a really special way that that AI can can support the the healthcare system is being able to pull on a lot of data and give some really objective reasoning as to why a, a doctor has a certain opinion. Yeah, I I completely agree. And then I guess kind of it, it's tough though too because I think AI can take the average of the data, like it it can make these great decisions because it's able to store and process so much more information than any human ever could, like all of these data points. But I also think it's so, that like is why it's just so important that from the beginning, there's this intention around like, what are we taking the average of? Like, are all of these examples truly representative of the population on which it's going to be making future decisions um, because it it can so accurately do that. But then sometimes if like the people who are training it or the people who are choosing the data that's going to be feeding the system, like aren't being cognizant of making it equally represent uh, like representative of, of the population as a whole, that's when there can be all of these issues later, later down the line. Yeah, I think that's the the hard thing about so much data that's collected in medical research is focused on men. Yeah. And it there's such a, a lack of data collected on on women. So mm-hmm. it, it, the the future will will definitely be quite interesting there. Um yeah. kind of kind of speaking on that that uh gender equity lens, um I know in the VC world quite a small portion of capital is um, allocated to, to female-founded ventures. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you have any kind of thoughts or, or strategies on how to combat that challenge? Well, it's something that not speaking on behalf of Panache as a whole, although I know that Panache is like very actively looking to to support underrepresented groups in the way that we like plug ourselves into the ecosystem and, and in the ways that we screen deals and that we have like specific criteria um, where we will indicate like how many female CEOs or how many like individuals from underrepresented groups are on like the board or on the founding team. And so definitely know that it's a top priority for Panache. And it's also a, a top priority for me, like independently as, um, as an investor, making sure that I'm plugging myself into the ecosystem so that I can get purview into these, um, like other underrepresented groups. And, and I think that there have been really fantastic initiatives developed by people in the ecosystem to elevate these voices. And so like DISC um, is a really fantastic monthly or uh, it may be bi-monthly pitch pitch uh, night that happens where they highlight um, these underrepresented groups who have founded businesses. And, and so there's a couple of different initiatives like that that are kind of spotlighting those voices. And so I'm personally just making sure that I'm um, plugging myself myself into to those various opportunities so that I can bring them back into to my team. It's great to hear that it's, uh, you know, a priority for Panache. Um, what, what advice could you give to our listeners who may be looking to, you know, turn their AI idea into a viable venture? I would say like, 
Something that I found, because CDL was kind of all about this, was like CDL was very focused on finding these like top researchers at Carnegie Mellon who have this fantastic new AI technology and they just have no idea how to apply it. Or like often there are these like researchers who aren't business people and they don't know how to kind of build a business around it. So this was kind of the entire premise of CDL is like this fantastic academic research that you know, the, the creators of it don't know how to commercialize and scale. And so, I mean, my first tip would be to go to CDL. Um, (laughs) and then, uh, my other tip would be to perhaps pull themselves kind of away from the technology for a second, rather than focusing. I think there can be a bias, especially for, very technical founders to focus like product, 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 and always figure out like, how can we optimize this technology without kind of doing these regular touch points with the user, the ultimate users of the technology to make sure that it's something that they'll actually, um, that will actually add a lot of value. And so the biggest thing that I could say is like making sure that you're having touch points with, um, like doing customer interviews and, uh, connecting with, the ultimate users of your technology to get a sense of like, if it's something that's actually going to be beneficial to them. And I think like along with that, it's great to have continual feedback from your end user so that you can, you can use that to, to modify the product as, as need be kind of as you're developing rather than focusing a hundred percent of efforts on the technology. And then having this final product where you're like, great, we're ready to go to market. And you just like, haven't been bringing your customers along that entire journey. And then you've kind of built something that, um, isn't necessarily, you know, perfectly positioned to, to add value to the, to the target market that you're going after. So I would say having kind of continuous conversations with, um, with customers and making sure that you're not only laser focused on, on product, um, would be kind of the first thing. And then, I mean, this is something, I feel that this one sounds a little bit obvious, but it's something that I I think comes up a lot or came up a ton in conversations at CDL is just around like competitive positioning because so many like AI has just kind of exploded and there's so many people who are looking to, to apply AI to, to a whole host of different industries. It means that it's a lot of the areas uh, within which AI is being applied are, are very saturated. And so I would say not only pulling out from like working on the product to make sure you're engaging with customers, but also pulling out to make sure you're kind of have a un, like strong understanding of the competitive landscape and that you know how to very clearly articulate what your differentiator is. And so it's it's tough when you're like, I I think that it's important to when you're building AI to be able to speak the language of the people you're ultimately going to be selling to. And so regardless of how cool the technology is, if you can't communicate why it's superior um, in comparison to competitors in terms of like, this is going to save you time or money um, when you're speaking to your end users, I feel that um, it's often kind of brushed to the side or not put on the priority list of your end users. So I think, yeah, just being able to articulate why your technology is better than competing solutions through the lens of like how it's going to save time or money or how it's going to be able to have like X significant impact. I think your points here really just reaffirm that, you know, we're going to need strong communicators being able to create great algorithms. That's, that's 
only one part of it. The other side is how you communicate, um, how you're able to translate uh, between the two sides and, and how you're able to position yourself in the market. A hundred percent. And this is something that came up um, when I was at CDL all the time. Like I remember when I was interviewing, I think we interviewed around like 120 AI uh, companies for for the cohort that, that I was a part of. And I remember sometimes they'd be speaking this like super highly technical language. And I'm like, oh my God, I have to write down all these terms. I don't know what they're talking about. Like, this is so complicated. It must be so cool. But I think like my perspective on that has just shifted so drastically such that like, if you are building a product that a lot of people are going to be able to use, you're going to need to be able to explain it to people who don't have a PhD in computer science. Um, and so I would start saying, rather than kind of putting it on myself, where I'd be like, oh, I don't understand. It must be really fantastic because it's so technical and sounds very complex. My, my new perspective was this founder isn't able to clearly articulate their product and their vision. And so I would start asking questions rather than like writing a million notes of like, what does this mean? What does this mean? Like go and research it later. Um, I would start asking questions like, or, or I would start saying things like explain this to me. Like I'm five, tell me like, what is the value of this business? And I am in kindergarten because you're going to need to be able to explain this to business people who don't have a technical background, um, to users of your product who don't have a technical background. And so a hundred percent, I think like that's another huge tip that I would say to, to people who are building AI solutions is to be able to articulate it to like somebody in kindergarten. <laughs> yeah. and, and I love that lens. And I think Sarah, it makes, you know, getting into AI or, or, you know, taking that leap to start something a, a bit more accessible to, to mm -hmm. think like, if you're a strong communicator, like, how, how do you build those connections and, and partner with someone who, you know, is maybe more so on the technical side? You don't need to kind of have it all to to get into this world. Um, so I think there's a lot of people who, you know, have kind of that that perspective of AI and where things are going. And when we talk about upskilling, you know, basically the entire population to be able to, yeah. to thrive in, in this world it's great to hear that from you that, you know, communication and translation skills are, are really key. Yeah. And I think it's actually an advantage personally. Well, maybe I'm biased, but I actually do think it's an advantage to, to work in AI, not having that deep tech background, because then you can kind of be the filter through which these companies will be like presenting ideas. And, and if you don't understand it, then you can be like, okay, if I don't understand it, then a lot of people aren't going to understand it. And so I think it's actually really great to have people working in, in the space who don't have that deep tech, uh, kind of that like deep tech, uh, knowledge and, and background. Totally agree. Although I may be biased because I don't have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's just, I mean, that's just me because I don't have a computer science background. So I'm for choosing to frame it that way. <laughs> well, thank you to Sarah for being here. It was great chatting with you. Um, thanks for sharing your career journey and perspectives on the future of AI and how venture capitals can play a role. Thank you so much for having me. And to our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder to hit the subscribe button to hear more episodes from us. If you like what you've been hearing on the podcast, we do invite you to go wherever you get your podcast and leave us a comment or review. Tell us what you love about the episode or better yet, tell us what you want to hear more of in the future. And you can find us on Instagram at Dear Data Podcast. On top, on top of the world.